The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Everybody, it's Mo Vela again. It's a privilege to be the guest host today for the indomitable and incredible Leslie Marshall. I can't fill her Jimmy Choo's, but I will do my best to enlighten and empower you today through my special guests, through their knowledge and through their perspective. My heartfelt gratitude again to Leslie Marshall and to Mark Grimaldi for once again letting this chubby gay bald Latino from South Texas fulfill his dream. If you weren't with us on my previous guest hosting gig, I want to remind each of you that I'm all about civil discourse, seeking common ground, and advocating for equality, inclusion, diversity, and celebrating the human spirit. In other words, no double standards when I'm around, and together we celebrate each other. So let's get to my first guest today, Dr. Olusegun Ishmael. We all call him Dr. Ish. He's a senior medical executive with extensive experience in academia, clinical, primary and emergency care, insurance, and healthcare technology. He's served the medical community for over 20 years. He received his medical degree from the University of Ibadan, Nigeria, his residency training in family medicine in Gary, Indiana, academic fellowship at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and has an MBA from Purdue uh, University. Well, what an underachiever, Dr. Ish. Welcome back. You're incredible, my goodness gracious. I barely made it through law school, much less extra degrees. So uh, how impressive is that? I, Dr. Ish, I wanted to have you on today. I, uh, I can't cuss on the air because Mr. Grimaldi won't, and Leslie Marshall will never have me back on. But what the heck is going on? We're all, we're all not going to the grocery store. We can't go get our hair cut. We're all, I'm, I don't know about anybody else, but I, I'm, I've never seen anything like this. The streets are empty. There's no traffic. What's going on, Dr. Ish? Are we overreacting, or is this real? I think there's a little bit of both. Um, I think there is a real need to self-isolate or at least keep some distance. But at the same time, I think we're also taken to an extreme. Um, one, the first problem is, once again, that I reiterate from our last discussion is, I don't think we're testing enough. And I think most healthcare providers are going to be in the same place of saying we're not tested enough. We've had patients come to the ER just because they miss the fact of not having contact with somebody who's traveled or not being, having traveled themselves. We don't test them, but they fit every other category of symptomatology. So if you don't know and you don't have the knowledge of whether I am positive or I'm negative, then everybody's going to be afraid. Everybody's going to, if I just have a common cold, do I have just the flu virus, not COVID-19? So how do we truly know? So what do people do? Everybody panics. So everybody's now afraid. 
Now Costco is empty. You can't find, you can't find toilet paper anywhere. So it's really kind of it's put a scare in everybody. So if we could have if we can have knowledge, then knowledge is power, and then people can make their own decisions about what to do and what not to do. I love that knowledge is power. You know, Doctor Ish, I'm not going to waste your time trying to find a correlation between a lack of toilet paper and the coronavirus, um, because I think even I understand there may not be a correlation. <laughs> but but let's. I, I want to stick to the topic of testing. Um, why, uh, it, from your perspective as a medical professional, actually an emergency room doctor right now in your life. Uh, in rural America, why are why what is this lack of testing? What's happening? Um, I, I don't want to say let's place fault, but could you help us figure out or at least better understand um, why don't we have enough testing? How's that happening? So I I've sat back and thought about this, um, and I think it's multifactorial. I think one as a nation we. We're not, we were caught with our pants down. I hate to use that as a terminology, but I think we were not prepared. In other words, we didn't have enough test kits um, available. And when we talk about test kits, basically it's not necessarily even the test kits themselves because the same media right now we've been told we can use to transfer specimens being taken. So let's first explain how we're testing. We do a nasal swab. So let's imagine you just take a Q-tip, swab your nose, and swab the back of the throat, and we put it into a liquid uh, formulation and then send it off for testing. The problem is there are not enough of these test kits available. That's the first problem. So I believe we're rationing it out to those who we feel are at the highest risk. So if you travel or you know somebody who's traveled, then you're going to get tested. Um, The next phase is I think... It's political. I think part of it is political, and I have no specific political affiliation. But my belief is that if we don't know, we can hide our heads in the sand like the proverbial ostrich. And then we can say, well, the number, our numbers are low. Well, our numbers are artificially low because we have chosen not to test. Now, if we were testing more, you would, your numerator would go up. So. That's where I think the, the two biggest problems are. We weren't ready. We didn't have enough test kits. Two, we just prefer politically not to know. Wow. That, that is, honestly, in many ways, that actually breaks my heart because um, I just can't even fathom the thought that anybody would put their political interests again, above the safety and wellness of the citizens of our nation. But, you know, I want to ask you, speaking of political, I don't want to get, I don't want to put you on the spot politically. That wouldn't be fair to you. Um, But I do want to ask you this, if you're willing to answer this as a medical doctor. And when you heard the president just a short week or two ago, call this a hoax or that this would quickly go away. Do you mind sharing with us what your like immediate reaction to that was? I just want to hear from a doctor, from a medical professional. I know what I reacted like as a political strategist and, you know, as uh, as just a citizen, but I'm just curious if your reaction might have been different than me just as a non-medical professional. So, first my initial reaction was shock. It's like why are you coming on national television and telling the public? I can understand trying to alleviate panic, 
because panic can cause chaos. However, my con- my next concern is we're seeing the trajectory in other countries and how it's going, and we're beginning to follow the same trajectory and to come out and say, oh, it's just a hoax. Um, the rest of the world is, cannot be playing a hoax. <laughs> so it's like, okay, no, we have a serious situation at hand, and we need to have steady hands on the steering wheel to drive us through this chaos, not say it's a hoax. You can't imagine, you can't wish your way out of a problem. So that was my initial reaction. I was like, no, we, we have a problem at hand. We don't want people to panic, but we do need to tell people the truth and let them face the truth. We need to, they need to know the symptomatology. They need to know how contagious it is. They need to know what rate of... Um, of mortality, morbidities out there. So there are things that people need to know. And just coming out and saying it's a hoax is not going to wish it away. Um, Dr. Ish, we're going to take a quick break. Please don't go away. I, I know that our listeners want to hear more from you, and I would like to have a little further dialogue with you if you can hold on for just a little bit. Okay, thank you. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. This is Mo Vela in for Leslie Marshall today. Uh, Dr. Ish, you're still with us, I hope. I'm here, bro. Uh, thank you so much for for waiting. Um, listen, Doctor Ish, I know that I know that I could I cannot ask you to predict how long this crisis will stay with us. But um, how, from your expertise as a doctor and your uh, education, um, how long can these type of pandemics uh, last? I mean. I don't know um, enough of uh, history to be able to say that they can go from a month to 18 months. But what, from your perspective, can these go on for an extended period of time? Um, Unfortunately, yes, they can, um, especially when there's lack of processes or leadership to help contain. Because the first thing you want to do is identify um, the sources identify what who, the vectors, and then begin to contain. Um, containment is critical. The problem is once you pass the containment phase and you are not able to contain, now you got to mitigate um, the issues that are going to follow up with the transmission. And unfortunately, transmission is not on a one-to-one basis. At a certain point, it becomes exponential. Um, I don't remember if you remember the old commercial in the 70s about the young lady who told two friends and she told two friends and she told two friends. Yeah. It becomes exponential. So, for example, I have the virus. I pass it to three other people. They pass it to three other people. So before you realize, you could have one million people who have these this virus. So that, especially a virus like this, which is highly contagious. So the sooner we begin to... And I understand why people are closing in and self-isolation, et cetera. And that's why, for example, you have to give kudos to the NBA and all the sports um, franchises for saying, we got to stop people getting together. So 
that's the, those are the kind of things we want to contain. We want to close in on and begin to isolate pockets of infection. Yeah. So um, that's kind of a scary thought in so many ways, but I, you know, I don't want to contribute to panic um, of any kind. So, you know, I, I think that we just need to stay the course, right? And we need to all uh, do what we're being told to do. Wash our hands. Don't touch your face. Social distancing. Don't congregate in large masses of people. Um, and I think uh, to your point, doctor, we'll, if we keep doing that, hopefully hopefully our uh, our country's leadership will catch up with us, huh? It sounds like maybe uh, some of our governors and local officials are a little further ahead than the president at this point. But I want to move to something real quickly, Dr. Ish. Um, I understand uh, you and I had a conversation. You are actually working on a new venture. And I really admire people like you who uh, have the the brilliance of being a doctor and then you're entrepreneurial and you're using your knowledge as a doctor to enter the world of technology. You want to share with us a little bit about HealthyWorks and what you're what what you got down coming in the pipeline here? So, so thanks, Mo. Uh, um, HealthyWorks is a project that we've been working on. It's a it's a real time uh, personalized health maintenance and preventative uh, reminder for people. So basically, what it, what we're aiming to do is bring. Um, Healthcare to the individual on a personal basis. The software platform begins to just ask questions and on a daily basis to the individual, identify any issues that of care that they've been missing or help them identify that there's a potential that they may have something going on because the majority of us have a smartphone. So through this smartphone technology, we can begin to identify issues, remind people that of things that they need to have done. We can also provide them with reminders on their medications, preventative services, et cetera. I kind of use an analogy of what I was thinking the other day. I said it would have been wonderful if the CDC had sent out through all of our smartphones a reminder saying, hey, by the way, this is how coronavirus is transmitted. These are the symptoms. Not to scare everybody, but at least to educate people. So that's what Healthy Works is kind of a platform to do, to begin to say, to each individual on a personalized basis. This is what you need to do to stay healthy. This is how you stay healthy. These are the preventative services out there. And here are the places where you can receive these preventative services. Wow, that sounds like it's going to be an amazing uh, benefit to so many folks around the nation, around the world. And we actually will have you back um, when you're uh, when that app is out in the marketplace, uh, we'll have you. If Leslie and Mark will have me back, I'll oh, have we you will. Back. We definitely will. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll have you back and we'll get a chance to learn even hear more about that uh, because we want to I'm sure Leslie and Mark agree we want to do our part uh, on this show to help uh, create a preventative uh, health care situation across the country and around the world Dr. Ish you are amazing thank you so much for enlightening us today for empowering us with your knowledge um, and you know what? We'll we'll have you back on again every, every time I'm on. To as long as we're dealing with these crises, this crisis, we like to have you back on and keep giving us um, honest and sincere and and um, advice. Okay, so thank you so much. No, thank you both for having me. Thanks to Leslie and Mark. Thank you. Well, next 
folks, well, I have a wonderful guest. Um, I have Dr. John Tentillo, different kind of doctor. John is a PhD, he's nationally known branding and marketing expert. And actually, a little uh, little interesting insight, he's actually responsible for coining the name The O'Reilly Factor for Bill O'Reilly's show. He's the one that created that brand name for Bill O'Reilly. Uh, he received his doctorate in applied research psychology from Hofstra University and is presently an opinion columnist for Newsmax, where his column, The Marketing and Branding Lens, analyzes the topics of the day using these two essential disciplines. He can be seen every Wednesday on Newsmax at 12.50 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. He's worked on national and local campaigns where his work as an art director, creative officer has won him many industry awards. John, welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. Well, thank you, Mo. And let me tell you, just hearing you uh, state, which is my mantra, where we could have non-emotional discussion where we can listen to the other side and dialogue as opposed to screaming and yelling. And when I met you the other day, I said, I got to meet this guy because uh, you're just, uh, you're you're so genuine and you you make it so easy and uh, enough said. Well, that is very kind of you to say, John. I felt the same way about you, and I can't wait for our listeners to learn more about you today. But just as importantly, I want them to learn from you. Um, we've got, we're going to go for about a minute here before we take a break, and then I'm going to have you back, okay? So don't sure. go anywhere Not at the problem. break. So the first question I have for you, because I thought when you shared this with me, I, it really intrigued me. Um, you said to me the difference between branding and marketing versus communication and messaging. Can you just, in, in just uh, start, start there and help us understand the distinction between that? When you talk about communications and messaging, you're basically talking, you're starting from the candidate themselves, okay? How am I going to get this message that I want out to the public? John, can you hold there and let's pick it up right there in just a few minutes. Right. We're talking to Dr. John Tantillo, the marketing doctor. By the way, John, before we get back to that subject, I want to point out to folks that you have a, a book that's very popular out on the marketplace called People Buy Brands, Not Companies. And a little birdie told me you have another book coming out in the fall, and I can't you, wait to read ready? that one. Are you ready, Mo, for the title? <laughs> <laughs> Give me the title. Here's a good okay. chance. People by candidates, not parties. Could Perfect you segue. <laughs> Perfect segue to get back on our topic, right? Because Absolutely. The, the int- <laughs> what I wanted to learn from you was you contend that campaigns and, and candidates need to be focused on branding and marketing the, the uh, candidate rather than focusing so strongly on communications and strategy. Can you elaborate on that? Uh, I, I certainly can, because marketing addresses the question, what are customer needs, or in this case, what are voter needs? What is it that people or voters want 
in their candidates. Uh, Obama knew it. And um, Trump knew it, and uh, that was the magic. And um, uh, if I can be so bold, uh, uh, President Obama was great at resonating a message and delivering that message with um, with eloquence. While Trump, what he does is he connects and resonates with the man and woman on the street that drives journalists and those who are more used to uh, more um, uh, what I would call literary references, more uh, common phrases that mean something uh, to the audience he addresses. And to give you an example of that, my dear friend Colleen, when I'm a blue-collar guy, okay? My father worked, um, it was a union guy at Pan American Airlines. And uh, Colleen said to me, you know, John, Trump talks like our parents, like our fathers. And I said, yes, he does. I said, I don't know if I should say that or not. But And then when I say that, to my Democratic friends, their eyes do uh, uh, do twirls and and they roll <laughs> they roll their eyes and yeah. say to me, you know, how can you say that? But, I said, but it's true. It's it doesn't come at, off as uh, eloquent as President Obama's uh, words, but they come out as sincere. Whether or not you agree with that or not, that's something else. So, right and I John, the- so let me let me let me make sure I understand you. Are you because I think we're in agreement on something? I, I, clearly, I am not a fan of Donald Trump, but I, what I what I agree with you on is when you're using this comparison to Barack Obama in this uh, messaging and their branding of themselves. I think what I hear you saying is that the key to a successful campaign and candidacy is knowing your audience and understanding your audience. Is Bingo. that Bingo. is that right? Okay. Yeah. Well, I have a saying, okay, and it's very, very uh, – It's it describes what branding is all about. Uh, you can't sell meat to vegans. No matter how you try, right. it's not going to work. <laughs> and, I, I, and I say this on my Facebook page, uh, you're never going to like Trump, and that's okay. I get it. I'm not here to persuade you. But you got to understand. But to see, if you're going to uh, confront the president, okay, what you got to do is be objective and say, what is it that he is weakest on? And confront them on that, not for it to be an emotional attack where his uh, his uh, followers or his supporters are going to feel alienated. Right. And see, the beauty of you, you understand that. Well, that's kind of you to say. I actually uh, agree with you on something, and this is something I'd like to say to my fellow progressives and Democrats. Um, and you just made it an excellent opportunity to share this thought with folks. We we the way you win campaigns is that you convince people to vote for your candidate, right? That's right. And so uh, 
Uh, so when you let people, you want to convince people to vote for your candidate, the only way we're going to do that is to, frankly, to appeal to people who don't already support them. Oh, and, and yes. Right. And so we have to understand mm-hmm. who that is, what the psychology is mm-hmm. in, in the reason that they oppose you right now, and then try to help find a way into their psyche and into what motivates them and what triggers them so that they can actually change their mind. Is that a fair assessment? Uh, that's a fair assessment. And here's a concept of marketing. And by the way, you guys, the Democrats, and by the way, I'm independent. Uh, although people think I'm not independent, they think I'm Republican. Uh, that is not true. I'm an independent. We well, we love independence, and, 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 and you know what? And we welcome you on the Democratic side anytime you want to come over, John. <laughs> Well, I was there once. I was a liberal Democrat. I worked for uh, Cliff Wilson, and in the, in the, uh, he was the local assemblyman. I was his chief of staff. So I did all of that. So um, a- a- anyway, the point I, I like to make is that uh, marketing is not about you. It's about your customer or the voter. Uh, and if you, can rec- if you can understand that, and the Democrats did that in the uh, midterms, and then yes. they did something not, uh, crazy, and I'm not going to even go to the I word, but, uh, <laughs> and that was health care. If, yeah. if, if the Democrats would have uh, held to script, and no pun intended, and would have done the health care thing, uh, I, I think uh, they would have been unbeatable. But that's well, another question. Th- that is absolutely uh, a very fair assessment, I think, and insight, frankly. And I think um, I think I hope people are listening to us on the Democratic side. And, John, I can't thank you enough for being with me and being with us, sharing your expertise and your insight I hope that we get to spend time again together soon. And anytime I'm on the show, you're always welcome back. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's really a pleasure. We look forward to your book in the September. Okay. Very good. Thank you, John. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mo Vela in for Leslie Marshall today. Um, and just in case I run out of time at the end, I, I want to thank Leslie Marshall again and the producer of this incredible show, Mark Grimaldi. Thank you both so much for having me back. You let this chubby guy let his dreams come true, and I'm so grateful to you guys. Um, so my next and final guest is an incredibly and highly acclaimed uh, journalist named Darren Sands. Darren uh, has a keen understanding of the intersection of politics, race, and culture. He's established himself as one of the top reporters covering the intersection of race, culture, and the national electoral politics. His reporting during the 2016 cycle led to some of the earliest and most extensive national reporting into the rise of Stacey Abrams and Andrew Gillum in the 2018 midterms, two of the party's most central political figures, as we know. 
Darren's insight into the Black Lives Matter movement is based on his reporting, which presented readers with a clear, definitive account of what became of the movement in the aftermath of the election of Donald Trump. We'll be talking about that. And for the past five years, he's been a national political politics reporter, excuse me, at BuzzFeed News, and his work has been featured in the Boston Globe, Grantland, and the New York Times Magazine. Darren Sands, welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. Hi, Mo. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's uh, good to be with you. Oh, it's wonderful to have you, Darren. I'm so proud of you, and I, I, I've followed your work, and uh, I'm, I'm just proud of your, your talent, and thanks for sharing your gifts with the world. So, Darren, oh. I, I, let's, I wanted to have you on because I, I, I consider you one of our nation's experts in, in uh, not only uh, political uh, writing, but and political knowledge, but actually the impact of the black vote and the black culture and the black community in our electoral process. So, first of all, let me get your thoughts on what's we're watching happen right before our eyes. Without the black community and the black electorate, let's. I think it's safe to say that Joe Biden would not be the presumptive nominee of the Democratic Party right now. And I think it's also safe to say that uh, the the tremendous surge in turnout uh, mostly is attributed to the black uh, electorate. So what are your thoughts on that? Why do you think that's happening? Why do you think all of a sudden the African-American community starting in South Carolina just woke up and said, hey, we're going to the polls and we're going in record numbers and and we're supporting supporting Joe Biden. What do you, what do you think? Uh, what can you attribute that to? Yeah, Mo. Thanks for having me on. You know, as you're talking, I'm recalling being in Iowa um, with um, the former vice president, and he was. I was in a town called Atumwa, and he was in a uh, VFW that had clearly been there. I think at least since World War One, I, I would say um, it was a very old building. Um, he came, and obviously most people know this, but he's not a drinker. But he had, uh, bought a round of drinks for folks who were gathered around the bar, and there were only a few people in this sort of small town who had come to see uh, Joe campaign, and he really kind of thanked them and mingled with them and kind of did his uh, style of retail politics in the in the way that he, he only he can. Um, and that was the same day that Donald Trump had come to Des Moines and he'd given a speech at Drake University. And you could kind of see, uh, you know, Joe um, frustrated by this. Uh, he, I think, the campaign at that time was very uncertain about where things were going in Iowa. They didn't know if they were going to finish in first or fourth. Um, lots of folks on the campaign were talking in private a lot about the anxiety of just being not being able to wait to get to Super Tuesday, um, not being able to wait to get to South Carolina, obviously, um, Joe leaves um, 
New Hampshire, I believe it is, early and, and, and goes to South Carolina and sort of in the, in the you know, in this one of these kind of clandestine trips that um, I think in so many ways ends up defining the campaign. But one of the things that I noticed about that visit to that small town in Iowa was how much those folks trusted Joe. Um, a lot of these people are career civil servants and former military um, officials, people who take their duty and their sense of um, loyalty to the country really seriously. And they identified something with the former vice president that I just attributed to a really keen sense that he's an extraordinarily decent man and someone who understands as a former vice president for eight years, like what it means um, to be a dutiful civil servant and to take seriously the um, mandate to protect and serve the country. And it's the same thing that you saw in South Carolina. Um, lots of folks on the campaign are sort of trying to justify this by talking about voters who are black being, you know, quote, pragmatic people. And that's true. I think from a strategic standpoint, pragmatism a lot of times does factor into these decisions that voters make. But that one commonality that I saw was trust. They trust uh. Joe a lot. And it's yeah. something that I think that in the broader story, when this the story of this campaign gets told, the idea that he was such a trusted figure in a fast-paced um, period of time where the changes are seem to be insurmountable um, in terms of what we're dealing with, uh, just the ability for those people to believe and be motivated by the trust that they um, had wow. him was something that you can't um, replicate a candidate. It's something that's extremely rare. And what a, um, I think that it's, what a great it's, observation, Darren. I think I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more. Um, you know, it's no secret that I worked for Joe Biden and he's a friend of mine. Um, you know, it's hard not to trust Joe Biden, to your point. Um, it's it's hard not to like Joe Biden, even if you don't necessarily agree with every single policy stance of his. But it's hard not to trust him. And you just hit on something. Uh, frankly, that a lot of folks are not talking about, and that is this issue of trust. And now, I'm assuming that, like, in the African-American community and the black electorate, it's probably very similar to, to the Latino community that where I grew up with, right? That trust is actually up in the top, if not the number one most important thing. It's, it's, it's always at the forefront of our community's minds. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. I think that a lot of the focus groups that I saw from Democratic groups like Parties USA and even the DNC and some others um, put trust up at the top in terms of what they felt were the determining factors for them as voters. And the issue with that in the inverse is that folks like Elizabeth Warren found problems gaining traction as a quote-unquote ally. Mm. Mm -hmm. And you can't gain that sort of traction if you are coming to 
the conversation um, as an unknown or someone who doesn't have that kind of a track record. Very interesting. Very interesting. I want to touch real quickly because we're, we're going to run out of time here because I'm so enthralled with what you're sharing with us. Uh, very quickly, do you think that this surge and this huge impact that the black electorate is having on this election, frankly, the Democratic Party better think, be thanking them for the next, you know, multiple decades because um, – Congressman Clyburn, in my opinion, you know, saved Joe Biden and our nation probably. But but do you think that some of this is a result of the Black Lives Matter movement? I can't help but think that some of their work is now paying off, for lack of a better way to say it. Do you agree with that? I think that this really goes back to the like 1948 um, and I'm thinking a lot now about Hubert Humphrey's um, candidacy in 1968, another tumultuous year in American history. And obviously he loses the election, but he's someone who in 1948, just 20 years before, he was nominated in that tumultuous year where Dr. King was assassinated and Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. Um, There's so many parallels that you could discuss at length, but in 48, he gives this speech where he implores the Democratic Party to take up the mantle of civil rights um, as a moral challenge and as a moral imperative. And I think that that legacy is something that isn't necessarily always uh, appreciated and known, but I think that it's something that even now, someone from the same institution that um, Hubert Humphrey came from the U.S. Senate. Joe Biden um, is benefiting from that work and that sort of um, centering of the black American story in liberal mm-hmm. politics, the way that we mm-hmm. sort of think about the Democratic Party and its stance on liberal issues. So much of it is um, it was the, the, the thought process and the, really the creative um you know, politicking of one of the great figures in American history. Someone is is having a little bit of a resurgence, but um, I think it's so important to understand in the context of the, the racial conversation in America in 2020. Wow. Very, very fascinating, uh, perspective. I think we're down to like one minute left in the show. Um, you know what? I, I, I just want to hear your thoughts on, I, I know, and we just have one minute. We're going to have to have you back because we got to keep this going. Um, why do you think there's a disconnect between Bernie Sanders and the black electorate? I, I, I've not seen this in, in my adult life, really a huge disconnect. What would you attribute that to? I know we don't have a lot of time and the answer is probably much longer, but uh, in a nutshell. Yeah, I think one of the, 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 the things that they've gotten wrong is this idea of talking a lot about the establishment um, across uh, lots of different disciplines. They use that word a lot, but really yep. at the core of the, the word establishment is people who show up every year. Yep. And that would be the black community for the Democratic Party. Darren, we have to leave it there. 